Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with North Carolina-based author Edward DeGange. He is the author of The Gift Best Given, a memoir which was published back in May of 2020 during the pandemic. The book dives into the story of a late adulthood search for the woman who had placed him up for adoption in his birthplace of New York City at the time of his birth almost 70 years before. It also tells of the many discoveries that he made during the course of this journey. The most significant was that his birth mother was a celebrity performer in the ice skating spectaculars in the 40s and 50s. We discover a whole lot about his past, the COVID now, and the future. Enjoy. Thanks for reaching out, man. It's always great to uh, to have new people out in the world, new creative people that want to talk. So I appreciate you reaching out. Yeah, during COVID, I've been I've been walking like crazy every day, and every day I go out there and I just keep on looking for podcasts to listen to, and I came across yours. Oh, cool, man! Yeah, I actually I've really been diving into podcasts more and more lately, and I am just totally blown away by how many good things and stories and just people there are out in the world that we don't know about. It's like we've been fed this kind of corporate uh, design of people and stories for so long, it just seems like a more aggro, open field of, like, human digestion of, of really good yeah. stuff. Yeah, that's well put. <laughs> so I'm, I'm relieved. I, I got, the first one I really got hooked on was one called Here Be Monsters, and I don't know if you've heard of that one. I've heard of it. I think I've not listened to it. Oh, you should. It's really, really good. I mean, it's kind of in that NPR vein. It's really high fidelity, high end quality. You know, they put weeks into it, and it's just sure. really good stuff. Yeah. Sure. So, but yeah, it's again, amazing the gamut of uh, production values one end to the other, which doesn't mean one is any any less important than the other one is. But some of them are just so you know you could you could just feel the investment financially that's been put into them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good. It, 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 I think it's just such a good kind of human revolution that's going on right now that people are yeah. reaching out. I mean, just even us being able, we would have never known each other before to be able to confer and to, and to talk and to get the stories out there. I think it's such a great human community in this post-COVID world. Oh, I do. I do as well. How long have you been doing the podcast? I started my jazz show in 2011 and made a commitment that I was not going to get any stories about the world of jazz from books. I wanted to get it from the musicians. So I kind of started slowly and started ramping up after that. And uh, yeah. yeah, so it's, uh, but you know, I was a journalist in college and I, you know, you never get that bug out of you. It's kind of like when people get tattoos, it's like they always warn you, if you get one, you're going to get a whole lot. So journalism right. is kind of the same thing. It's <laughs> been my cigarette. I can't get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I can understand that. So, but it's good. But yeah, thanks again for reaching out. And I think what I want to start off with you is kind of talking a little bit about COVID. You know, that was that was a rather tumultuous time for all of us. I mean, there were still sure, linings. Sure. How how did you survive as an artist during this time, and how did it change you? You know what? It COVID slowed me down as an artist. Um, my book, which was independently published was ready to go just as COVID began. And the wisdom that I received from others is, well, just wait for it and in September when this is over, release it then. 
And I, I chose not to do that. So it was published in May of 2020. And there was a lot of time put into the promotion and the marketing of the book. And fortunately with COVID, there were, you know, there were a lot of people sitting at home waiting and listening. But unfortunately, there were a lot of people on the commercial side who were basically not doing very much at that point. So the, the audience was kind of, uh, kind of tempered, you know, and on one side, very enthusiastic and eager to read anything. And on the other side, you know, very, very slow and cautious just because of resources. Um, I, I think an awful lot of energy went into the writing and the production of my book. And, you know, quite honestly, I think it left me a little bit empty. You know, so I, I've had a period where, or I had a period where I really was not able to, you know, to get firing again as I would have liked. And I had an idea for what I wanted to do with my next book. And I just, you know, I, I just sat there and I looked at an empty computer screen. And my problem was I knew where the story began. I sort of had the feel for what the middle would be, but couldn't quite come up with the ending. And with at the ending, I just, I just kind of sputtered. But, you know, it, things, things have opened up again. What I did do a lot with COVID, though, unrelated to my writing and my publishing, was I was out every day walking five, six, seven miles, and it didn't matter if it was, you know, 20 degrees out or, or later in the year, whether it got up to 95 degrees here in North Carolina. And I took a ton of photographs of, of nature issues, and I just, yeah, I I think being out there opened my eyes to what was around me. And, you know, it was everything from, you know, from flowers to birds to the stones in the river. And I, I, I think it was a, that was a good experience. That was a very good experience. I've noticed as I've gotten busier again with my writing, and I still go out for those walks that I, I don't notice quite so much. Maybe it's because I'm listening to podcasts all the time now. Yeah, no, that's a great story, you know, and I, I myself, I'm a busybody. I love taking pictures, and I remember around probably June um, of 2020, after the pandemic settled in, and, and I was with my son at a nature sanctuary, and I was on a call. I did a lot of my uh, interviews on speaker to really fill the time with my stepdaughter and son, and resoundingly, uh -huh. the, jazz, the jazz community was such an optimistic community. So anyway, one day I'm there, and... I think I just finished up an interview, and this guy pulls up beside me, and he has a massive camera, massive lens, and he's just intently out, and there was a bald eagle, and he, he starts taking a picture. I'm like, oh, man. So I start taking a picture, and this guy goes on to tell me he's been waiting for probably 15 years to capture that image of that eagle. He had gone oh, out. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, what a wonderful time during such a tumultuous time on Earth but also, because the earth slowed down and quieted, maybe that made the eagle come out. I don't know. But it was a really I think cool moment. That's a good point because I, you know, I noticed a couple of birds the first go-round or the first year of the pandemic that I've not seen since. And it's it could very, yeah. could very well be that. You know, I, the, I was out there in the winter and I saw this rather, you know, unusual-looking bird fly down the length of the the stream that my, you know, that our rail trail follows and had a redhead and something in my mind just said, pileated woodpecker. 
And sure enough, I went home and looked it up, and that's what it was. I have not seen one since, even though I, I, I saw several those first, you know, first couple of months. Yeah, I saw some wild things that, with with nature that was going on. At, at one point, I, 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 where I'm at here in Kansas City, I'm in a suburb called Grandview, and I'm a technician, an IT technician by day. So I go to a lot of schools. And probably around May of 2020, I saw a, a dog chasing a deer, and I've never seen anything like that. It was like, yeah, yeah, literally, nature got to a place where they were probably like, "Wow, where are all the humans at? What's going on?" And kind of frolic. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, we we see deer here all the time. We we have a cat that adopted us several years ago, and she pretty much runs the house now. But we we also have a deer across the street who comes out. We have a power easement, and this one deer comes out, and periodically we'll we'll look out there, and the cat will be sitting up on the hill, probably not much more than ten feet from that deer. And you know the, the two of them just yeah you know, they just enjoy the same vibe I think there's no fear yeah. you know certainly a little cat is not a threat to a deer but that yeah you know, that that deer is no threat to the cat yeah they're just coexisting so where yeah, are you located yeah. where are you at exactly? we're in I'm in Hillsboro North Carolina which is equidistant between Durham and Chapel Hill so the you know, the culture down here is, is college basketball between UNC and Duke. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, but it's interesting. The people here, uh, you know, in the literary community call, call North Carolina the country's writingest state. And the people in Hillsboro, where we live, refer to Hillsboro as, you know, as the writingest town and the writingest state. We've got some wonderful, very well-known authors here. That's wonderful. So, speaking of authors and writing, let's go back in your life. Are you originally from there? No, originally I'm from New York City. I was actually adopted at birth in New York City at the time, you know, well, at the time of my birth. I uh, grew up there and lived there until I was just about 40 years old, and then my wife and I relocated to Houston, Texas for a career move. And stayed there for probably, I'm thinking it's 12 years, made another career move and moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We were there for 13 years. And then I came down to, you know, to Hillsborough and to the, to the triangle area here for another career move, but I'm retired now. And we, we think, we, we certainly hope this is the, the last of our moves. We're very, very pleased to be here. So talk to me a little bit about how you got the desire to write. How did all of this kind of become you? Well, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I I could probably put my fingers on a couple of minor moments. I as a as a middle school kid, you know, I was I was probably the world's worst underachiever. But I was a voracious reader and for extra credit in in my English class, you know, the the teacher would let me write essays and, and bring them in. And yeah, so I, I did some of that. And actually one of them, you know, she sort of came back to me and said, I don't think you wrote this. It's too good. And, and she wrote a note on, she said, you need to bring this back to your parents. And if, you know, if you truly wrote this, they need to, you know, send me a note back. And I, I thought that was a great compliment. I, you know, it's kind of a kind of backwards motivation for a young person. Uh, in high school, you know, we got a new English teacher one year, and again, this was a 
yeah, real um, upscale private school, very, you know, with very small classes. And I had recently arrived there and we had a new English teacher come the second year I was there. And we were assigned summer reading every year. And then we had to write an essay about one of the books we had written, had read, I'm sorry. And I turned mine in and, you know, and he introduced himself when he came to class and he said, I'm really disappointed at all the work that I read from you guys. The only one who seems to have any grasp at all on this is Ed DeGanji. And I said, okay, that's good. So, yeah, but I, yeah, I, I did not do a lot of creative writing. I wrote some journalistic type things for some specialty journals that at one time was, I was involved in horse training and horse breeding. And I wrote some articles there. Uh, I wrote some articles for a fly fishing journal and then did a lot of writing just for my professional career, you know, just communication with my, with my workforce and with the people who I reported to and was very well regarded as something important needed to be written. Very often it was turned over to me to craft the, craft the language for it. So I'm curious, you know, in your life way, way back in the beginning, what was the book that really did it for you that you come back to that you love? Uh, you know, I, I love John Steinbeck and I, you know, I love The Grapes of Wrath. I also loved the book Cannery Row, which I guess was really a, a novella more than a more than a full-length novel, and I think he was just so brilliant with with description of people and places, and you could just you could feel it and you could touch it. Grapes of Wrath, I think, was wonderful from the standpoint of you know the alternating chapters, one describing the the landscape or what was or what they were seeing the next chapter, you know, the action of the people involved in the book. And it was a, I thought it was a great model. I am so glad you said that, that it was a hundred percent. That would be my answer to that. Grapes are Those really, <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like 21 and um, a girlfriend at the time, I didn't read that much said, here, why don't you read this? And I just was sucked in to that world. You know, I went from there to travels with Charlie, yep. Pearl, everything. I mean, I just, I swallowed everything up and yeah, I mean, he is an amazing, uh, an amazing writer. Um, yeah, I, I did the same thing and it's, yeah, I, I, I read pretty much all of it. I have a copy of the Grapes of Wrath, which I bought at my high school book at a high school book sale. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's going on 50 years old at this point. Actually, it's going on 60 years old. Yeah, I still have my <laughs> copy. It was kind of a beige, uh, tan copy, but yeah, I, I always hold on to that for sentimental reasons. Um, yeah, exactly. So, for, in, in your writing career, what was the first piece of creative writing that you, you wrote where you were like, wow, this is good. This is something that, you know, I can see myself going to another level with this. Uh, I, I think the first piece was actually something that was published in my high school yearbook at the at the time I graduated. And it was a story, you know, we, we all were asked to submit stories if we were interested. A uh, number of us did. And I was very pleased when it was when it was published. It was one of one of two published, you know, from our senior class. 
And it was a story about a place in upstate New York called Doodletown. And it was a town in a, in a state park that hearkened all the way back to the Revolutionary War and got its name because reportedly troops had come marching through there, you know, playing, playing Yankee Doodle Dandy. And by the time I knew Doodletown, there were, there were still remnants of homes there, but as they, as they put the park into place, all the residents that had been in the town were asked to leave. So they were relocated or they were actually evicted versus relocated. And it was just a little bit of a ghost town. It was a quite an eerie place, quite an interesting place though with the history that was attached. So the best gift given, talk to me a little bit about this book and, you know, what it, what it meant. Like it seems like it was almost a cathartic kind of thing for you. So talk to me a little bit about the story and how all of that came about. Yeah, as I said, I was adopted at the time of my birth. I was I was literally a day old when my adoptive parents brought me home. Um, to the best of my recollection, and I, you know, maybe my memory is not a hundred percent good. My adoptive parents never once mentioned that I was adopted, and it was just never talked about. And it wasn't until you know my my birth dad or my adoptive father passed away in 1976. My adoptive mother passed away in 1987. And it wasn't until 2017 that I got the bug to go and look to try to find the identity of the woman who had placed me for adoption. And it was not something that, you know, that clawed at me all the time. If once, twice a year, I might give it some passing thought, but yeah, you know, I, I was gifted with a very, with a wonderful childhood. You know, my my adoptive parents were the only parents I ever knew, and they gave you know they gave to me what they would have to you know to their own birth child had they had one, and so I never really felt a need. But um, you asked about books that have inf- influenced me. I had just finished a book called. The Lost, and the subtitle was The Search of, for Six of Six Million by a man by the name of Daniel Mendelssohn. And he had gone on a journey in the early 2000s to learn the identity of six relatives who had perished in the Holocaust. And not simply as a Holocaust book, and obviously he knew in general terms what had taken place. He wanted the specifics. He wanted to know where and when and how. And he went on a worldwide journey finding people who had known them or had come from the town where they did. And I've read that book probably half a dozen times now. And that was kind of fresh in my mind. And I I just went to the library one day and I started pecking around. I was very fortunate in that my adoption had been privately arranged and my adoptive parents had saved the adoption decree. So the adoption decree had their signatures, it had the signature of their attorney, and it had the signature of a woman whose name I did not recognize. But then logic told me, that's got to be your mother. And, you know, and I, I did what 100,000 people, well, a million people have done since, is I, I plugged that name into Ancestry.com and, and the journey began. So talk to me a little bit about 
role models or heroes in your life? Who goes then? Oh, that's interesting. You know, my, my father was obviously a very strong influence on me. Uh, he was, you know, he, he came from a, from a Sicilian family. He was born in the States, but his parents had been born in Sicily and come, come to the United States in the big migration of the 1890s and early, early 1900s. Uh, so I, th- I think he gave me a lot of, of structure in my life. He certainly, he made me a, a compulsive punctual. Yeah, his deal was if if you're supposed to be there at eight o'clock, be there at five of. Uh, I think you know my my adoptive mother was a. I think if I could reach out to anybody who shaped me, it would be her, and it was just I think in her patience, her kindness, her understanding, and you know, and she was so so well regarded by by anybody who knew her just yeah for the quality of the person she was and you know she yeah she gave a good part of her life to raising me and then when I was more or less independent she went back to work and she was quite a talented artist she when she you know she worked as a as an animator and painter on a a couple of academy award-winning animated shorts so yeah they the two of them together and yeah, had a had a big influence on me, and I, you know, I I would hope most people would say their parents. Yeah, you know, my dad was actually born in Brooklyn, raised in Long Island, so I. Oh, had, okay. Uh, yeah, my grandparents, great grandparents, came from Shaka, Sicily, and then uh, the other part of my my uh, great grandmother's side came from Naples, Italy. So, um, so yeah. Um, yeah, you're Italian through and through. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, it's interesting. My adoptive father was Sicilian. My adoptive mother was Ukrainian. Okay. So it was a. Uh, as as I grew up, I always you know I sort of had a a choice. For some reason, I you know I assumed I guess because it was my father, I I related to the Sicilian identity, but was always more comfortable with the with the Eastern European family. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Well, my mom is. English, Irish, and Scottish. So there's a there's okay. that, that yeah that half. So there's there's a half that that, that kind of rolls with the Italian side. So, um, but you know I've been to the old country a few times. In fact, I was in the oh, back of a water. Yeah, and I was in the back of a water taxi in Venice on the morning of September 11, 2001. Wow, uh, wow. I was back. I was backpacking and you know didn't really contact home. You know that was kind of my philosophy when I traveled. I just shut everything off so I get in the back of a water taxi guy starts shooting his arms in the air and then there you go then then that everything began I started putting pieces together but uh mm-hmm. yeah Italy is a uh, magical place for sure um it is we went there when I was seven years old and I wish I could tell you I remembered more about it than I do yeah but you know there there were snippets but I you know not not an awful lot and I would, I would love to get back yeah yeah absolutely so if you could meet anybody alive on the planet right now, who would it be? Anybody alive? What an interesting, what an interesting question. Hmm. I'm, I'm sorry for the silence. I, I'm always prepared for the. I'm always prepared for you know. I can meet anybody. I'm always prepared for the dead guy. <laughs> and it's funny. I have these conversations with people, thinking that you know people are not nearly so interesting now as they used to be. 
Yeah, I, I could think of I could think of a good handful of people who are no longer alive who I would would love to have sat down and had a cup of coffee with. Uh, you know, one of the people I think I'd be very interested in talking with, though, would be this author Daniel Mendelssohn, who I had, who I mentioned, who wrote *The Lost*, just because he has got just a such a wide breadth of knowledge, and I think a very yeah you know, an insight into things that probably goes beyond you know the average. Um, we also have another author here in town by the name of Alan Gerganis. And Alan wrote a wonderful book called The Oldest Surviving Confederate War Hero Tells All. And, you know, and he, he's probably about my age. He's, I don't, I, Al, Alan is not out and about too much anymore, but, you know, he, he survived the, uh, the AIDS epidemic in New York City at the time. And, you know, so he's got a picture of, of, of the New York that I knew that, you know, Probably a side of it that I didn't know, but he's also yeah, just a, a brilliant writer and a kind person, and and again so insightful. So I think it's yeah, just these people who I, I think just have the an unlimited reservoir of conversation, you know, based on the experiences that they've had and the knowledge they've accumulated. Absolutely, it's a great question, though. Oh well, thank you. Yeah. It's- so to follow that up, you know, speaking of wisdom, you've spent a lifetime accumulating that. And I'm curious, if you have a dream tonight and you run into your younger version, say around, you know, 20 or so, and you could give your younger version one piece of advice based on what you've lived through all these years, the wisdom that you've gotten, what would you tell your younger version? Well, you know, I, I sometimes have regrets that I did not take better advantage of the education I was offered and I'm catching up with that now but I think it is something you can catch up with I think you know it's the the advice would be you know follow your own path you know pursue what it is you want but be kind to people as you do that I like that I learned that from a boss uh, years ago when I started my current job, he used, he's one of the nicest people I've ever met. And I remember he used to always say, you attract more bees with honey. That was his quote. And uh, Oh, yeah. You know, and he just epitomized that. It's like, you know, it, it's just so expensive to go through life not being nice and not being civil with people. It's just such a such a bad karmic decision. It's just, it's just all the way around. It's just, it's like, why? You know, it, you expend so much energy to put that feeling that's not good into things, but you get so much out when you're just like a Beatle, when you're like, you know, singing a Beatles lyric, it just makes sense. Well, I was going to say it doesn't cost anything to be nice to people. Right. I mean, yeah. th- that's that's the easiest thing you can do, but, you know, but contrary to the, you know, to the great boss that you had, there are other bosses out there who don't understand the value of, you know, they think the only way you can get productivity the only way you can get loyalty is, you know, is beating it out of people, and the opposite is true. You get exactly what you don't want. I agree. You know, I had a lovely experience back in June. I was invited to to come and meet with a book club who had read my book down in Houston, Texas, and it was 
built mostly of people who had worked for me from 1988 through 1996. And, you know, we still had that relationship and, you know, and it was, it was like going home again. That's wonderful. So everyone has a perception of you, an idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends, those that read your books, but you ultimately live your life. Who do you think you are? Well, yeah, I, I identify as a husband and a father. I, I, I try to identify as a, a decent, kind person who, as much as he can, does the right things and, and probably sometimes goes astray. So, final question for you here. What has been the yes. best fan response or letter that you've gotten from your book? Well, as a, a good part of the book takes place in New York City. And I've gotten a couple of pieces of feedback with people saying that, you know, they they know the places, they can feel the places, they can touch and smell the places from the way I wrote about them. They were familiar with them and it was, you know, and it was utterly, utterly right. I think I've had a couple of other pieces, particularly in in one-on-one or face-to-face interactions, you know, talking about adoption where people have, have come to me and said, we have, you know, I've never told anybody but, and it's either that, you know, I was adopted or, I gave a child up for adoption, and your book just touched me so deeply. And I, you know, I, I think that's just it's just wonderful praise. It's very meaningful to hear that. Absolutely. So, if anybody wants to learn more about you, pick up the best, the gift best given. Uh, anything about your world? Where's the best place for them to go? Well, I've got a website, and it's at www. Diganji, and that's spelled D I G A N like Nancy, G I author.com. So it's one word. And the book is more information is available there. Signed copies and copies of the ebook are also available there. And the book is widely distributed. So, you know, it can go, a, a reader can go to, you know, to their independent bookstore, and I would encourage that. Any place online, you know, certainly the book is available there. And if you don't want to invest, you know, purchase the book and make that investment, it's available in ebook form in pretty much every library now. It's available on Hoopla and on Overdrive. Wonderful. Ed, man, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. It's great to get to know you. Thank you for listening to, to my, my material. And I'm so glad that we, we had this chance to to talk and I look forward to getting this out there. Oh, I enjoyed the conversation so much, Joe, and thank you so much for allowing me to come on the air with you. Thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with Joe Domino, where we cover the world of art, literature, and music around the globe. If you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.